Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lay. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm hungry, as always. I know, me too. But I am so excited about our topic today. This is going to be delicious. So delicious. You know, I think that I've always taken the American diner for granted. But on a recent visit to my hometown, I started to take a closer look at the diner, specifically the one that was such an important part of my small town life. It was where we went after almost every social event in town basketball games, football games, baseball games, a night on the town, which usually meant bar hopping, or keggers if you were underage. Those didn't generally take place in town. They were usually on a logging road down by the river, somebody's house whose parents were gone. Anyway, I started to really think about what these comfort food establishments meant to the communities. And of course, the next thought was, well, where did they come from? So I want to start by looking at what a modern American diner is. And you may disagree or agree with me, but this is generally what they look like today. They're typically open 24 hours a day. The menu is never precious. It's likely that it has staples that include meatloaf, steak and eggs, omelets, but regional flavors are often represented as well. Salmon in the Pacific Northwest, grits in the South, crab cakes in the East. Always there's coffee. Not the short latte, half soy, half almond, two and three quarters pumps pumpkin spice, 203 degrees, extra cup, no foam, please, coffee. How did you know my order? (laughs) (laughs) No, just drip coffee in a glass carafe carried by your wait staff to top up your coffee. Simple, easy, no fuss, just an always warm cup of coffee. Though you do have the option of cream or sugar, and that's typically on the table. The interior is inviting. It won't win any interior decor awards, typically. The tables are worn, but in good condition. You have your choice of either a banquette seating, tables in the center of the room, or stools at the counter. The silverware looks as though it may have gone through the garbage disposal one too many times. The plates and coffee mugs are substantial, and they need to be, to survive the number of times that they go out to the tables, are unceremoniously shoved into bus bins, and put through the rigorous washing process dictated by the health department. There's a specific sound to a diner as well. The conversations bounce back and forth off the walls, the ceilings, and the floors, kind of taking on a life of their own. The silverware rings out as it's gathered together, and the porcelain almost groans as plate meets mug meets soup bowl. But the American diner didn't always start out as a community-centric, family-friendly gathering place that we know today. They actually had more in common with food trucks that we know today. 
The origins of the diner can be traced back to a young Rhode Island lad by the name of Walter Scott, who, in 1872, turned a horse-pulled wagon into what is called the night lunch wagon. And these wagons became known as night owls, which was particularly interesting to me because that's the name of the diner in my hometown. Uh-huh. <laughs> so... Scott catered his low-cost meals to late-shift workers, newspaper men, some theater goers, anyone who was out after restaurants had closed and were looking for a hot meal at a good price. Service was simple. You'd purchase your meal at the window and enjoy your grub curbside. And as the popularity of the lunch wagon grew, they began to evolve from window service wagons to rolling restaurants that included a few seats inside. So think like a trolley car with some seats at it. People started to refer to these as lunch cars and then dining cars and then the final moniker of diner. Now, strictly speaking, to a purist, a diner is a prefabricated structure that's transported to its location. And this was the next iteration in the evolution of the diner. In 1884, 12 years after our young Walter Scott introduced the night lunch wagon, Samuel Messer Jones, also of Rhode Island, was inspired to take Scott's concept with him to Worcester, Massachusetts, after being laid off from the Corliss Steam Engine Works. He opened up a night lunch wagon and then went on to found the Worcester Lunch Car and Carriage Manufacturing Company, which pre-manufactured lunch wagons that were installed across New England with a couple of outliers in Michigan and Florida. And this company actually operated from 1906 to 1961. And some of their diners are still in existence, and they're listed on the National Register of Historic Places. One of the things that really struck me is the longevity of the diner. The ability for the owners to adapt to the times was significant in the success of the diner. As I mentioned before, diners catered predominantly to a male crowd. Women actually saw them as coarse and dirty, but that would change during World War I. When the men went off to war, the owners of these diners needed to cater to these women that were left behind, and they did so by adding window boxes that were filled with colorful flowers and advertising their foods as home-cooked. In the 1930s, another trend influenced the design of the diner, and it was about this new modern era, which we would also see in the 1950s after the Second World War. We wanted to look forward after both of these wars, so designs took on a futuristic look. And when the Depression hit, the low cost of the menus of the diners helped them to stay afloat. After World War II, the design of the diner experienced another evolution. Again, with this forward-looking, more modern era, you start to see Formica countertops installed. And this was really interesting because Formica was actually introduced in 1913, but it really didn't come into its own until the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s. And it was because it was cheap, but even more importantly, was because it was cheerful. The, the mm-hmm. patterns were colorful and beautiful. And even the names of the Formica patterns exuded happiness. Mayflower, Spindrift, Soft Glow. We also saw porcelain tiles, terrazzo floors, leather booths being installed into the diners at this time. The diner has become this icon of American culture. You have politicians who stop at local diners to meet their constituents. It's been the setting in films like When Harry Met Sally, Pulp Fiction, Grease, 
Mildred Pierce. It appears in paintings by Norman Rockwell and Edward Hopper. It's been the topic of songs by artists like Woody Guthrie and Tom Waits. And even if your diner wasn't manufactured by the Worcester Lunch Car and Carriage Company and was built on site, it's a place where you can share a comforting meal. Talk about that unforgettable play in the fourth quarter. Catch up on the week's happenings and be in community together. And one last thing about the diner. The food comes out fast, but it's always delivered with a salutation of recognition if you're a local or a term of endearment if you're not. What it isn't is an anonymous experience. Very true. Even if you're a stranger, you're not a stranger. Yep. (laughs) I think for me, the American diner is synonymous with that romantic ideal of the open road. You know, it's a part of a network of roadways that cross the nation, connects cities and winds across deserts, over mountain passes and through woods to grandmother's house we go. But somewhere along the way, there would be a a stop for a hot meal. And that is the diner in my imagination. It is, as you say, the Edward Hopper Nighthawks even. Mm -hmm. You know, that the kind of that that warm glow from the inside spilling out into the street that draws you in. And even though you're a stranger, you're not because you're in the company of others who are a lot like you. Last year, my husband and I took an Amtrak train from Seattle to Portland for the long weekend. And it was a really interesting experience because I usually travel by air. So travel by train is kind of a, a little unusual for us. But the experience was just so cool. When I was on the train, I couldn't help but look out the window at the landscape flying by and enjoying the brief scenes of life as the train rolled along. You know, the, the weathered railroad side saloons and sometimes the trackside houses and tiny downtowns that you like just catch a glimpse of in a, in a moment. And while our country has matured in leaps and bounds and the old railroad and highway routes have kind of given way to interstates and airplanes for long distance travel, Their gentle retirement has brought other chapters to a conclusion. So my contribution today is about an institution that was once known deeply throughout the Southwest for its hospitality to rail travelers, and that's Harvey Houses. To give some orientation, in the later part of the 18th century, actually very much at the same time that the diner cars were being developed and conceptualized in the East Coast, there's a simultaneous development with the Harvey House, which ultimately was a chain of restaurants and hotels specifically serving rail passengers. The first locations started in 1876 on the Kansas Pacific Railway with two eating houses developed in Kansas and one in Colorado. Now, these cafes on this line really only operated for about a year, but it proved to Fred Harvey, a former freight agent and immigrant from England, that there was a market for high quality food and a really strong service oriented experience for people on the railways. And he quickly found his big opportunity with the Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe Railway, with whom he established his first eating house adjacent to the line in Topeka, Kansas. That was followed by one in Florence, Kansas in 1878. And the Harvey House concept basically continued right on down the tracks to Lakin, Kansas in 1879 and all the way down into New Mexico, Arizona, 
What was really relevant about the Harvey houses was that they were the first to offer a very consistently high quality experience in a very short amount of time. The idea was that it was a spot that a railway passenger could pop into while a train was taking on fresh fuel and fresh water. Everything was down to a science, even how the cup was positioned in its saucer was an indicator of what drink was supposed to go into it. So a passenger could have an entire meal, a nice meal, in a very short amount of time. Up to that point, there were no real amenities meant for people traveling by rail to the American West, to the Wild West. And because there were few amenities, there were very few travelers. We had this sort of like catch-22 situation going on. And so ultimately, the Harvey Houses were that innovation that brought restaurants and, in a way, manners into this kind of, as I said, wild, wild American West. And Harvey had an unprecedented deal with the Atkinson, Topeka, and Santa Fe line, which it, I'm just going to call ATSF from here, that based on the success of his Topeka eating house, he was given unlimited funds to set up a series of, ultimately, the Harvey houses dubbed eating houses at all the fuel and water stops along the ATSF routes. And at more prominent locations, these eating houses actually evolved into hotels where people could spend the night, and some of which survive today, such as La Posada in Winslow, Arizona, which I think is also a Harvey House Museum. By the late 1880s, there was a Fred Harvey dining facility located every 100 miles on the line. And the ATSF also agreed to convey fresh meat and produce free of charge to any Harvey house via its own private line of refrigerator cars known as the Santa Fe Refrigerator Dispatch. And that food was shipped in from every corner of the United States. What's relevant is at this point in railroad history, there wasn't a dining car culture. There may be the ability to get a cup of coffee on a train, but there wasn't an actual car where there was table service and like a full-blown menu. So the fact that passengers could get off the train and go into Harvey House to get something to eat was a really big deal. We're, we're talking linen and china. And so in a way, people had to learn how to eat at these establishments. We talked actually uh, a little bit last year about how to be a good host. A lot of those table manners came into play. You were supposed to eat with a fork and knife and be a gentleman or a lady in, in this space. So when dining cars began to appear on trains, ATSF contracted with the Fred Harvey Company to operate food service in the diners. And all the ATSF advertising proclaimed Fred Harvey meals all the way. When Mr. Harvey died in 1901, his family inherited 45 restaurants, and 20 dining cars across 12 states. And the Harvey houses were pressed into service in World War II when they opened up again to serve soldiers as they traveled in troop trains across the United States. I wish I could go to a Harvey house if I could travel in time. I would love to actually go in and experience that. When I think about American diners, I think about that quintessential pre-chain restaurant experience. Yeah. I love that. It's one of those American icons. It is a place where you go to be in community together, whether that's mm -hmm. within your own community or if you have become a community that's traveling across the country on a train. It's the place where you go along an unknown journey that brings a sense 
Yeah. Of comfort. For me, travel orients me. I actually find myself easier when I am on a journey than I do when I'm at home. Mm. And and I think it's because of experiences like that where you suspend your identity that you have at home and you become actually a communal person. You greet people with politeness. You have conversations about the weather or sports. And, and of course the food is a big part of that. You know, it's stuff that's easily digestible. It's recognizable. Right. When you order pie, you know, you're going to get a slice of pie and that it's going to be sweet and, and familiar and, and comforting. And we've talked at length about comfort foods. I mean, that's kind of how we, how we kicked off as we eat in general, that notion about what brings us for more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing, we'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs>